Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from KX93.5. We invite you to listen to more music and talk on our grassroots nonprofit radio station in Laguna Beach. From anywhere in the world on KX93.5.com slash listen or on our smartphone apps. Right now, here's the Importance of Being podcast on KX93.5. All right, top of the morning. This is KX93.5, and you're listening to the Importance of Being show. I'm your host, Ernest Hackman. We do this show live every Sunday morning from 9 to 10. And uh, before we get started, let's just uh, let you know that we're uh, mostly cloudy this Sunday morning, uh, 55 degrees at the moment, and um, some chance of rain later in the day, but not not until later in the evening. Anyway, this is KX93.5. You're listening to The Importance of Being Show. Uh, We'll be right back to get the show started after this. Okay, how about that? This is KX93.5. the stars. 
Alrighty, this is KX93.5. You're listening to The Importance of Being Show. Uh, we do the show live every Sunday morning from 9 to 10. And today I am uh, I'm long-awaited. I have a long-awaited guest. Uh, we met quite some time ago, uh, Mike Vialli um, of the Global Conservation Force. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So, um, Mike, what is the Global Conservation Force? It sounds when, when it has force in it, it sounds like there's force involved. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, we are a multifocal approach nonprofit that deals with uh, anti-poaching uh, in poaching crisis areas, dedicated to rhino, elephant, giraffe, pangolin, African African painted dog, and then we have two specialty projects in snow leopard and saiga habitat zone. What's a saiga? Saiga is an antelope species that lives in the steppe of uh, Central Asia into Russia. Okay. And they are actually threatened by the same type of trafficking risks that rhino and pangolin are. The poachers are going after their horns, which only the males have in that species. Okay. And um, are the, are they, like with the rhino, it's uh, Chinese medicine or... Yeah, kind of it, there's a traditional medicine market that's also gone into a status market. So we call it the Ferrari syndrome. Uh, well, it's like a Ferrari syndrome, uh, syndrome where they, instead of buying the Rolex watch and the Ferrari car, if you have rhino horn, you are of higher stature because you can afford it. Right. And it's quite the problem because there are quite a few um, residents in China. Uh, the population right. is huge. Right. And you have the economics really building up on that. So the, the less available it is, the higher it costs. And then the exactly. more, more payoff it is. Right. Exactly. And it fuels corruption and uh, destabilizes local communities and it infiltrates, uh, you know, even the smallest zones where there are just a couple rhino and it causes a lot of violence, unfortunately. Okay. And so how do you go about um, cons- doing global conservation? So we are working on the ground in 12 countries and we have projects in a total of 14. That's with our specialty projects, the Snow Leopard and the Saiga. And what we do is we work, uh, we have our own projects. We work with partners and we help work in the communities that are in these crisis areas as well. So anything from getting education outreach courses to kids that are living next to the Kruger National Park. Uh, Some of these kids have never seen a rhino in person and they live just outside of the national park. Oh my. And so we will pay for school field trips. We'll do food education courses for the kids, the sustainability projects. So hydroponics, solar, uh, English classes so the kids can get jobs in the tourism industry when they're old enough and support the local community by purchasing their art, which we then sell here for fundraising. Oh, okay. All the way to... We have canines and mounted units uh, working straight up in the uh, protection zones, uh, catching poachers daily, weekly. Uh, We train rangers in multiple countries in advanced uh, tactics, anything from field medical stuff, because rangers are commonly the responding medical team. There aren't aren't ambulances. There aren't police officers in these zones. (laughs) The rangers have to do it all. Uh, Yeah, gas stations are far and few between, so... The ranger teams end up being very uh, important to the entire community. They also are also from the community. So okay. the ranger jobs support the community. And so um, you support the, the existing resources. You don't come in like an invading force. Not at all. No, no. We, we, we are there to build up the local, local community, local support uh, system. And then we also have our own teams that we have hired in uh, through partnerships and our own staffing. Um, the entirety of the business and fundraising and admin side of Global Conservation Force is 100% volunteer. 
Okay. So I call everybody professional volunteers because everybody's got <laughs> a set amount of time that they're working on fundraising or, you know, admin, whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the locals in country are the ones that are hired in and we make sure that we're supporting those guys so that the um, entire system from, you know, community to ranger teams is local and okay. we're supporting them to further their success for the future of those wild animals. And I guess that's a sustainable model where if yeah. you were dependent on sending, importing, you know, forces. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, uh, if you were, you know, it'd be like if somebody was sending people here to, you know, do our jobs, it would be the same problem. We wouldn't be successful. You'd be turning the community against the conservation efforts. And realistically speaking, we need to make sure that, those communities where those animals are from are self-sustaining in the protection efforts of those animals and the protection efforts of themselves so that they're not vulnerable to corruption and uh, right. the syndicate systems that operate, you know, kind of abusing the system to get these animals. Uh, if they value their wildlife and they value uh, the model of ecotourism and the success of goals that we can all put together, then we're, we don't have to be there 100% of the time. Okay. And you can set up one system grow it to, you know, one through five, level one through five, they become an operating system and you expand it further and further and further. And then you start moving into other countries. Okay. And so who, who is a poacher? What, what is, what are they generally like? I mean, are they local people? Are they, you know, um, exotic, you know, people that are hunting for trophies? What, what? So that's a really good question. What makes a poacher? So a poacher by definition is anybody who is illegally hunting wildlife. Okay. Uh, What we generally see in poachers is there's a wide variety. So when we're talking about uh, elephant rhino uh, poaching, those are kind of be, they tend to be a lot more aggressive. They tend to be a lot more organized and that's where the uh, syndicate systems are coming through. Okay. They have police officers on payroll, customs on payroll, right. violent mob bosses style mentality. Uh, the poachers themselves <clears throat> can be quite dangerous. There's a lot of con- contacts, you know, firearm contacts between ranger <laughs> teams and poachers. Um, and there's kind of like, you know, layers to that system. They're, they're very organized. And so one guy could be extremely violent and he's a weapons trafficker, a humans trafficker, a drugs trafficker, and he poaches oh, a rhino right. okay. and elephant. And then you have a guy who might just be getting started and they may have pressured him into the system and said, you're going to work for us. Okay. Because right. he's local. And they have, uh, they're, an, or they're essentially organized crime. They're organized crime. Yeah. And yeah. then on the other side where we're not so concerned, uh, somebody who's a subsistence poacher, somebody who may be going after like uh, warthog or impala. Like bushmeat. Bushmeat, yeah. Those guys, if they're trying to feed just their family, those guys are going to be uh, a lot more connected to the bush and the wildlife. Okay. And they're doing it because they have to because they're, they're trying to feed their family and they're trying to sustain that. Now, we have seen successful models of actually taking those poachers and offering them jobs and oh. they become some of the best rangers out there. Well, I guess they know the lay of the land, right? They know the lay of the land. They're really proud of that wildlife. And the only reason that they were hunting that wildlife is probably cultural based. And uh, sure. they have been pushed into a corner trying to survive. Right. And I guess they um, know how to hunt. And so you can hunt poachers. Just Yes. To- and tracking, knowing where the animals are and tracking poachers are two of the most important things about being a trained ranger. Uh, if you just are walking blindly through the bush, patrolling, 
you're wasting time. So <laughs> we, we as Global Conservation Force like a, train like these rangers to Sunday run. stroll type of thing. Yeah, and it, you know, trust me, it happens. Well, I, I imagine if, if, if you've ever, I've never hunted any anything in particular, but I've heard, you know, like hunting deer, you know, you have to go find them first. Yeah, yeah. And that's not... A, it's not easy they're in not an sitting area. Around everything and they're not uniformly distributed. <laughs> no, not at all. So yeah, they these rangers or those poachers, um, they can be turned. And unfortunately, there's a gray area in between the rhino poacher and the subsistence poacher. Right. There are guys who are uh, killing animals in a larger volume, um, which we call commercial bush meat poachers, where they're trying to kill enough animals to sell them in a market. And those guys start to become aggressive and violent because they are using it for profit, right. not right. for survivability. And, and so what happens when you find one? So when we find poachers, the first goal is to take them alive. Um, <laughs> I know. Every, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Everybody's always got a gun, right? They've got a gun. You know, it, it does get heated. <laughs> um, I've got a couple scars from my run-ins with poachers. Okay. Um, and it doesn't always go that easily. Uh, there's there's sometimes some good yelling and shooting involved, <laughs> but uh, the goal is to take them alive because they are the key source of information of who's paying them, how they got there, okay, who are they working for, and so uh, what are their plans. Unveil the whole chain of that exactly. And it let's say let's say you did have one hard guy and one guy who was coursed into it. He was forced to be there because they said you're going to show us how to get in there. And let's say that's the guy who got injured in the firefight. Okay. You turn an entire community against wildlife conservation and the local rangers who he may be related to. Right. So then you you have a community dispute and they don't want to have anything to do with wildlife conservation. Gotcha. And it's not success. It's not successful for the future of wildlife. Right. Because you might have killed someone's brother, dad, cousin in that conflict. And again, you can't do this from from afar, and you can't jump. You know, parachute in and save rhinos. I mean, it, if 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 the moment you leave, they go back to doing what they were doing. Exactly. And so we we are there for the long term. We're there for, we are in multiple project sites and multiple countries. And we want to make sure that they become self-sustaining. And, you know, Africa is not what most people think it is anymore. It's more like our national park system where there are giant cities outside of the national parks. There's a lot okay. of people everywhere. It's not just wild roaming animals everywhere. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, especially in Southern Africa, there are wild areas. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Instead of rabbits, there's porcupines and, you know, honey badgers <laughs> running through the areas, but it's not as wild as most people assume it to be. Um, so when you have a, a population of, let's say 2 million people living outside of a national park, and that's the impoverished community zone. Right. And they can't even afford to go see the national park. Um, they oh. need to benefit from the wildlife and the ecotourism. And we need to fill that gap slowly and make sure that people aren't um, preventing or prevented from going in because it's very important that well, they're sure if they don't, if, if it's something is just over there and they're not a part of it, um, then they won't have the, the, they won't value it. Yeah. They won't have any buy-in. They don't, they don't care. They don't understand um, what, what's the point, you know, of the wildlife also, uh, you know, so education plays a huge role in all of this. If folks don't realize that, they have the only habitat that has the only certain species of a certain type of animal. Right. Um, maybe they'll be proud to protect that species, or maybe they would be more involved and realize that it's a it's a it's a cultural heritage and a pride that they can just show to the world. Like we have, you know, sure. certain communities have that. And I, I suspect they may you you can. It's a much more sustainable and lucrative economy 
if you're doing tourism as opposed to shooting the last 10 rhinos left on. Yes. Yeah. So there's some countries do better with their, um, they do have hunting. Now we're not involved in any of that. Uh, we specifically work in the conservation aspect of stuff. Right. Um, but there are some, certain countries where there are not enough, there are not enough dollars coming in for ecotourism and or coming into the nonprofits that are supporting the reserves and the ranger units that, that hunting is the only way to generate that revenue. Gotcha. gotcha. And, and, and I'm not a proponent for saying that no, that's the that's, way to do that's it. That's not what you're doing. So yeah, it's not what we do at all, but it's just the hard reality. Um, you know, for example, rent, running a ranger team, how, how expensive is a running a ranger unit? Well, it's going to be anywhere between 60,000 and $120,000 a year. Okay. Cause you have to have vehicles, fence yep. lines, yep. Uh, comm base. You've got to have training. You got to pay them. Got to pay them. Um, and you want to make sure that you're, you're offering a, a stable job for their, them and their family. Right. Um, so, or or it, it, it's just a waste of time, right? Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break. Um, this is the, you're listening to the Importance of Being show. My guest this morning is Mike Vialli of the Global Conservation Force. We'll be right back on KX93.5.
things fall into place, superposition. This is KX93.5. You're listening to The Importance of Being Show. I'm your host, Ernest Hackman. We do this show live every Sunday morning from 9 to 10. And today I have Mike Vialli of the Global Conservation Force in studio. I've been waiting for this for like six months or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I met you back in the summer. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a couple months for sure. <laughs> Time flies. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we talked earlier about, um, you know, conserving um, exotic animals, essentially. And we talked about poachers and who poachers are and kind of what that's, what the economics around that are, are like. But Mike, how did you get involved in this? Did you grow up in Africa? No, actually, uh, so I'm from Southern California and I've always had a passion for wildlife. 
And uh, I was kind of always like, when I was growing up, I was always the kid that was outdoors climbing trees and building <laughs> forts. Uh, you know, I was the wild child. Um, and I was the kid in the neighborhood that everybody would call if there was a snake or a lizard that someone, <laughs> someone had to catch. <laughs> that was me. Um, but eventually I knew I always wanted to work in wildlife conservation. And so I worked towards that goal from a, a very young age, volunteering in, with as many different groups as possible. Uh, I became a vet tech and then I was started doing some field research, just helping doing endangered species counts out in the desert for desert bighorn. And, okay. um, then got a job as a senior mammal keeper at the San Diego zoo safari park. Really? Uh, so I've worked the full gambit of uh, wildlife conservation. And um, while I was working all of these jobs, I, I was always holding more than one job because wildlife conservation doesn't really pay well. So <laughs> Not <laughs> like Wall Street or anything. Not at all, no. I'm like, do I want the brown rice or the white rice? So, <laughs> so I've, I've had to, you know, make it, it's been a struggle to get to here even. And um, I, I was working multiple jobs and I actually started working as a ranger at Vale Lake, which is a private lake, while I was a senior mammal keeper at the uh, San Diego Zoo Safari Park. And I was doing that for several years, uh, from 2007 to 2014. Okay. And uh, I knew I needed to prep myself to get to this point before so you, leaving for Africa. So you knew you were going to do this? Oh, yeah. I, I had when it When did that click for you? When did you decide that, you know, there's a big problem, um, we're going to run out of exotic animals, and I need to do something about it. Like, you know, cause you could just mail a check in to somebody. Right. Oh, but uh, that's right. You've got three jobs just to eat rice. Yeah. Just to eat rice. <laughs> um, you know, I had a couple moments, um, a couple key moments where announcements were made where certain species were in more trouble mm -hmm. and the poaching crisis was, ex was becoming worse and worse over certain years uh, from 2007 to 2014, there was a giant spike. And uh, actually the, the real moment that was the, like I'm going to do this now was when I was the primary caretaker for two of the last Northern white rhinos. Oh, at the time there were seven and now, uh, there are only two left and they're in Kenya and they're not, they're not, they're related to each other. So there's no hope for breeding. Right. Um, and they're both female. Uh, it's not a viable population anyway. We just two, just two. Exactly. So when I was taking care of Nola and Angelifu, I was their primary caretaker and I, I just knew I was staring extinction in the face every day. And I really couldn't stand it. Um, now, was this your first trip to Africa where you were working with these animals or, or had you gone a few times? Um, when I first trip to Africa, I went straight into ranger intake. Uh, so I hit the ground running. Um, <laughs> I joined I joined in and went straight into uh, the Greater Kruger Park and the, what's known as the Rhino War. And I got trained by former special forces guys who had fought in the Rhodesian War and guys okay. who had been fighting in the poaching conflict for many years, uh, even as further, further back into the eighties and nineties when there were different spikes of poaching issues going on. Okay. And so I was lucky in the timing of the training because I got a lot of, I guess, content and a lot of experience in a very short time frame. <laughs> so there was a, <laughs> I'm sure, a lot I'm sure of fireworks. Your mom was really happy about the, 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 uh, a lot of experience in a very short time. <laughs> oh yeah. My parents were definitely like, you're doing what now? Uh, <laughs> you're going where? What? Yeah. When I told my parents, they definitely were very patient, but also the internal screaming was there. You could see it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, don't overreact, and then he'll go for sure. <laughs> and then he's going to leave for sure. They're like, are you sure you don't want a desk job? I'm like, no, I really don't like desks. Yeah, make it sound like you're going to, you know, it's a great idea. Maybe he'll change his mind. <laughs> exactly. They, I tried to get, you know, I was, they tried to sell me on different things for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. Here, I'll give you this car and. <laughs> They're like, you know, you could, you know, you could start up the family business again where we were doing music production. I'm like, no, no, I mean, that was cool and everything, but this is my passion. <laughs> Um, so weren't you scared? Um, I mean, when you, when you, when you got there and you know, they're, they're special forces guys saying, yeah, they're going to be shooting at you. What, what did you, you, that didn't, I think I was more determined. I was nervous for sure, because there were so many unknowns. Um, I actually was the first American to go into that conflict zone. Um, okay. They, and for that too, I took a lot of hazing and uh, <laughs> I was called the yank routinely. Uh, and that was not an endearing term. <laughs> so being the, the one of the only foreigners, there were two others in my course with me, uh, one from Germany and then one from another part of Africa. Um, they, I, we definitely took a lot of that. And it, we, being from the outside, there was no way to get any information outside of you're going into a military style boot camp, Right. And we're taking everything away from you as soon as you get here kind of thing. Uh, that was all I knew. So when I got into it, I was just kind of riding the, the wave day to day. And when things got serious, uh, I f definitely felt prepared. Okay. So I wasn't afraid. I just was just very determined. Okay. And so your first uh, expedition, if you will, what, what was that like? First expedition. So first, during training, what they would do is they would, we would be, you know, full military style going out on patrol, except they would give us dummy weapons. And so they're putting us up at posts and they're making us do clandestine operations, uh, following certain vehicles into certain bush camps. Okay. Um, and you know, not only, you're not only out there with the poachers, you're out there with the dangerous animals. And so you've got lions and leopard and your, your blue gun. And, yeah. And you've got a PVC pipe that bang. Yeah. And so you've got all these dangerous factors in, but uh, for me, I was always comfortable with that wildlife working as a zookeeper and, and, and just being an avid outdoorsman here. But, uh, it was really but like, in the zoo, getting, they're not going to try to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I work in the open field exhibits there. So, oh, so, so it's they, not they, like, they're... yeah, it's very much, it's almost the same. <laughs> so you could like, get run over. Oh, it's dinner time. <laughs> yeah. You do have to watch out for that. You know, you'd hear the, you'd hear like certain code words from certain rangers, like, oh, the bosses are out. And you're like who's the boss? And they're like, Oh, the lions, they're just down the, they're just, they're a hundred, they're a hundred yards from us. You're like, all right, well, that's not cool. And so, uh, but it was, you know, it was very wild. There was no, it was very much like band-aids off. You're in, you're in Africa. Here you go. Um, either keep up or you're gonna, you're gonna be behind. Right. Well, yeah. and there was no, there were no apologies. There were no nothing is if you said, I can't, I won't, I'm not, you're, you're off the course. Okay. And the fail rate was 75%. Um, yeah. and that was very much because of the guys leading the course were no, no messing around. Um, they were all about making the hardest Rangers out of the system. So when you, and you were also, while you're in this selection training, they're selecting you for what you're going to go into afterwards too. Okay. And so I became part of the Rhino task force unit, which was the, um, it was a, a joint unit between police, um, a special version of police there and other Ranger units. And we were kind of like the integrated SWAT team between working in and outside of the reserves. Okay. And it was very raw and real. <laughs> um, so 
did you start the Global Conservation Force? I did, yeah. And so what did you see that made you think that you needed a bigger organization or more resources or um, a tether back to the, to the mainland or to, the, to, I, to civilization, if you will? That's a great question because what I saw was hundreds of anti-poaching units without matching boots, pants, no weapons, no bulletproof vests, no vehicles, and so just seriously under resourced and extremely under resourced and almost irresponsible to be out there. Yeah, and these guys have all the heart and all the problems that they got to deal with. Okay, and the world is staring at conservation organizations saying, "Why are we losing these animals?" And the fact of the matter is, humans are the key to wildlife conservation. Okay, if we remove the locals from wildlife conservation, there is no there is no future for them, and uh, these rangers. We're talking about like a 12-man team taking care of an area the size of all of Orange County. Okay. How is that even real when you've got maybe two to five million people living around the entire outside of that and any direction can be coming in from poachers or anybody could be involved? Okay, so it's, you know, I think that's the, the thing that when you think of, when, when I picture Africa and poachers, I figure, you know, there's miles and miles before, you know, any kind of village or anything but apparently they're they're right nestled right on top of it like it was Yellowstone or not even Yellowstone that's out in the middle of nowhere too. Yeah. I mean look if you were to look at Laguna Beach and let's say Laguna Beach was one giant reserve and this is like the average size for some of the reserves there may be 50 reserves in um an area like the size of Laguna Beach's reserve but there might be a city like there are just outside of Laguna of a full population of people and it might be very densely populated. And when it's very densely populated, you only have to have one or two bad eggs to get organized and become a gang. And if they're connected to external money from traffickers um, overseas, all of a sudden you got a bigger problem. And that's kind of how wildlife protection um, is so difficult. Yeah. I guess they can easily with external resources overmatch your, the, the whatever rangers system you have built. Yeah, because they're always, you know, they, they, we don't know what their steps are. We have a good idea what their steps are going to be, but they don't really have to work all too hard to be a step ahead of us because we're, no matter what, we're always trying to catch up to them. Right. Unless we're doing intelligence-based opportunities and, or sorry, intelligence-based patrols where we're working with the communities and the communities go, hey, I heard there are some outside guys that showed up at a bar last night and they were talking about poaching a rhino. Then the community's on our side because our rangers are from the community they tell us that, and right. then we can say, okay, what vehicle are they driving? When do they plan to come in? What reserve zone were they talking about? Did right. you hear them talking about somebody else's name? Try to figure out if they're working with somebody on the inside. Okay, and so then you can kind of start working against that entire network. Yes, and you got, you're ahead of them in that sense. Um, so that's why I started the nonprofit, because I just saw, no matter what country I'm in, no matter what country and zone, there are ranger teams and communities uh, severely impacted uh, negatively from all of this. And there's just not enough support. You know, a lot of nonprofits only work in one spot. Sure. Or with a couple of details. Sure. Um, but you wouldn't be able to get the job done. Yeah. Just, just you and, and a few other guys. Yeah. What happens is if you have one strong reserve, everybody around them gets hit. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break. This is KX93.5. You're listening to The Importance of Being Show. Today, my guest is Mike Vialli of the Global Conservation Force, and he is out saving exotic animals around the world. This is KX93.5.
Okay, this is KX93.5. You're listening to The Importance of Being Show. I'm your host, Ernest Hackman. We do this show live every Sunday morning from 9 to 10. And um, this morning, I have Mike Fialli of the Global Conservation Force. And we've been talking about um, his efforts or his organization's efforts to uh, stamp out poaching around the world, and especially uh, protecting exotic animals and, and such. And your model is to support the community in protecting these resources. Correct. So what, well, how long have you been doing it? So Global Conservation Force has been around since 2014. I started as a pilot project first under um, Fight With Mike, uh, direct anti-poaching. I wanted it to be, I wanted to make sure that it was going to be successful to make it a bigger thing. And so then in 2015, we rebranded as a 501c3 Nonprofit, okay. Global Conservation Force, um, but I've been working in wildlife conservation since 2007. Okay, um, and so I've been in the industry for quite some time, and I've been lucky being here in Southern California for the earlier side of that, uh, meeting a lot of the world's top experts in all these different fields, all these different types of issues with uh, conservation, from you know overfishing to pollution to community integration, all the different styles of wildlife conservation. You know, when you think. What is wildlife conservation? There, there is no one style. There are lots of different ways, and it depends on what's happening. So I wanted to integrate all of the most successful models from all the folks who had taught me something over the years and really rely on the experts okay. and not at any point think that I am the standing expert in one. Right, not, and also not reinvent the wheel. Correct. You know, a lot of people have put a lot of time out there, and they've, they've really hammered out what does and what doesn't work. And even between areas, uh, like so like what works in South Africa does not work in Kenya. Okay. So you, you, you got to know that and you got to really rely on your your local information, your local experts and really sit down and talk and listen to them. What are their goals and how can you facilitate that? And then I guess build up capacity for them. Yeah, capacity building for sure. Because um, again, like, you know, you can't put 10 Mike Veals across the country and that uh, comes different continents. And it's kind of like Superman. Yeah. You it doesn't make sense. Put a cape on, <laughs> put, a, put a big red cape on him and, and right. plop you, him down. Put me down. I'm, I'm not that cool. <laughs> I, I would rather train other impassioned people in this field and make them successful so that we can all be a, a strong team at the end of the day. Yeah, and you can make more impact. Yeah. Right. More impact. Yeah. So, so what does your organization look like? What, it, what, how do you do what you're doing? So we spend a lot of our time here uh, in education and awareness building um, so that people know there's a problem. They get involved. They want to donate. Um, you would not believe how hard it is to raise funds. <laughs> I mean, oh, we, no. we this, get, is, this is the home of the galas. There's about a thousand nonprofits here. <laughs> oh, I believe it. It's a good spot. It's a beautiful city. Um, so we're always working on a new event or someone's throwing an event for us. That's our favorite because Usually when people throw events for us, um, we can really relax and come in as the content experts right. and deliver the powerful message. And yeah, you don't have to worry about the, the planning and getting the people there. Yeah. And that takes us away from the field. So our team, our volunteer team in the United States is just shy of 50 people. Okay. And we kind of have a, a small hub in every, I shouldn't say every big city, in a couple big cities across the Western U.S. Um, 
we try to do small integrated events where like it's a paint and wine event to we have an annual gala every year and we are trying to get people out to get involved and to donate, um, but hopefully inspire them to do something more. So how can people help with your organization? How can they help uh, make an impact and, and save some exotic animals? So everyone can play a role in fighting extinction and saving wildlife. And so not just superheroes like you. <laughs> no, and I, and I, I would be embarrassed <laughs> to be called a superhero. I mean, there, we have people who are doing marketing for us, and that's a huge help for us. Uh, website design, uh, we need help with people doing treasury and accounting and, and okay. internal audits. Sure. Um, anybody who has that background, we plug them in as a volunteer, we get them set up with the team, and then we have quarterly goals that we're trying to hit for all of that stuff. I can't say we hit every goal because it, it's very hard to manage not only the field projects, but all the volunteers because everybody's got a life and they've got a job. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> most volunteers on the team put between four and 16 hours in every week. Okay. Um, not everybody can do that. But we have, we have conservation officers, which are the, the beginning entry level. We have coordinators and then we have the directors and uh, we have anti-poaching units in the team's and the anti-poaching instructors. Okay. And so if people do want to get involved, how can they do so? So if you go to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, those are going to be uh, Rhinos, Rhinos GCF or Global Conservation Force. Uh, you can find those all active right now, or you can go to our website at globalconservationforce.org. And we have a shield with what is a rhino horn in the middle of it. Okay. Uh, that's how we're distinguished. Uh you can see all of our stuff. We post all of our stuff quite frequently uh, from our field projects. We have multiple players in the field right now for mounted anti-poaching units to our demand reduction education courses um, in Hanoi, Vietnam right now. Okay. So we're all across the world. All right. Uh, one more time with the website. Globalconservationforce.org. All right. Well, Mike, it's been a real pleasure having you here in the studio. Uh, well worth the wait. And... Um, Keep doing what you're doing. Keep Thank saving you. those animals. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks for letting me tune into Laguna. <laughs> All right. This is KX93.5. You've, you've been listening to the Importance of Being show. Coming up next is Steve Reed with the Coast Highway Shuffle. Uh, have a great Sunday, everyone.